you know, I just felt like they had already paid their debt to humanity. And that the greatest gift that I could provide for them was the ability to just be a horse. Welcome to the Sanctuary Life Podcast, where we take you through a day in the life of animal rescues and sanctuaries across the country. Whether you are an experienced sanctuary staffer, one of the countless volunteers who works so hard at sanctuaries each day, or someone who just loves animals, we hope this journey can give you a behind-the-scenes peek into just what it takes to live the sanctuary life. Now, here's your host, Brandon Feisner, co-founder of Louisville, Kentucky's Butterfly Valley Rescue and Sanctuary. A New York Daily News reporter once remarked, the thoroughbred racehorse is a genetic mistake. It runs too fast, its frame is too large, and its legs are far too small. As long as mankind demands that it runs at high speeds under stressful conditions, conditions, horses will die at racetracks. Today, we are recording a special episode to have an in-depth conversation about the horse racing industry and the fate that awaits racehorses when they finish their racing career. This afternoon, the 148th Kentucky Derby will be run right here in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. More than 150,000 people will pile into Churchill Downs and more than 15 million more will watch from around the world as 20 horses compete in what's known as the fastest two minutes in sports. The unparalleled history, tradition, and unique spectacle of the event draw some of the world's biggest names each year, but they also continue to bring up conversations about the safety of horse racing. It has been 14 years since the eyes of the world watched Philly Eight Bells collapse on the track moments after finishing second in the 2008 Kentucky Derby. At just three years old, Eight Bells was euthanized right there on the track at Churchill Downs after suffering compound fractures in both front ankles. This tragedy came just two years after 2006 Kentucky Derby champion Barbaro shattered his front leg in the Preakness Stakes, ending his racing career and eventually leading to his death. Then, just last year, the horse race industry, and more specifically the Kentucky Derby, was again thrust right back into the spotlight of tragedy. Medina Spirit, who improbably crossed the finish line first in last year's Derby, was stripped of his victory after testing positive for a pain-killing anti-inflammatory steroid. Then, just over seven months later, in December of 2021, the news broke that Medina Spirit had died after training in Santa Anita Park in Southern California. Reports later showed that Medina Spirit may have died of a heart attack, but necropsy reports were inconclusive. These are just a few examples of the many horses that have passed away while training or racing. According to the USA Today Network article in 2019, an average of more than 600 thoroughbreds a year have died because of racing. Some researchers have indicated the number of racehorse deaths may be as high as uh, 1,100 in both 2017, 2018, and 2019, though. The life of these racehorses include travel from country to country, state to state, and racetrack to racetrack. A majority of these horses never end up in the spotlight of these well-publicized races, such as today's Kentucky Derby, and are trucked, shipped, and flown to the thousands of other races that take place across the country. The tragedy that these animals face in the racing industry is nothing compared to the fate of those that never make it into the racing industry or uh, the horses after they are retired from racing. In 2020, approximately 36,000 American horses were transported across our borders to be slaughtered for human consumption, 
which included between 7,500 and 10,000 thoroughbreds, according to Alex Waldrop, president of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association. These 36,000 horses were slaughtered, not humanely euthanized. Euthanasia was, is defined as the gentle, painless death provided in order to prevent suffering, while slaughter is a brutal and terrifying end for horses. These horses bound for slaughter can include pregnant mares, foals, and horses who are injured or blind. They are often transported for more than 24 hours at a time in, order, in crowded trucks without food, water, or rest. For those thoroughbreds that are lucky enough to avoid slaughter and go into uh, breeding, the life isn't nearly as luxurious as some would think. Unlike in the wild, uh, many times domestic stallions in the breeding world lead solitary lives kept alone in stables and small paddocks in order to reduce the risk of injury and aggressive behavior. And mares are kept pregnant in some cases for nearly 90% of their life and are bred as soon as one month after giving birth to produce the foals for the next year. Joining us for today's special episode is Allison Bowling, co-founder and president of Red Feather Farm Sanctuary in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us, Allison. Can you tell us just a bit more about uh, Red Feather Farm Sanctuary and um, and specifically some of your amazing equine residents? Sure. Thank you sure. so much. Thank for you having. so much for having me. Um, Yes, so we're in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, we have 27 full-time sanctuary equine residents here on the farm. Six of those are off-the-track uh, horse racehorses, so they were bred for racing. Uh, a lot of people don't understand or don't realize, rather, that um, thoroughbreds are not the only horse that's raced, but that they're by far the most uh, recognizable by the general population. So we have four off-the-track thoroughbreds. We have one off-the-track standard bred and one uh, incoming resident who is an off-the-track quarter horse. And, um, you know, they, they represent a lot of the outcomes that you mentioned in the, the opening segment there. They've been through everything from equine kill pins to breeding situations to starvation and you name it. Yes, and I think one of the big things that um, we want to talk about with us, where we run a much smaller sanctuary and don't have the the experience with uh, with the equine species, and um, can you tell us what it is like to provide sanctuary care to these magnificent animals? Because I don't know any other way to describe horses; they are just incredible. Yeah, they truly are. And, and it's, it's really a gift. I mean, we look at it as being our, um, we have been blessed by these animals more than the other way around. But um, it's a ton of work. One, we have over 50 volunteers in our network that help, um, help us care for them on a daily basis. My husband and I who run the sanctuary both work full time. About half of our operating fund comes out of pocket from our full time salaries. So it's an incredibly expensive endeavor. Um, the vast majority of thoroughbred and racehorse aftercare programs do not focus on sanctuary. They, they instead focus on rehabilitation um, and retraining the horses for a new riding career or a new discipline. Whereas we take horses and give them, you know, permanent retirement and sanctuary on our farm. So our thoroughbreds and racing horses are anywhere from uh, six years old all the way up to 25 years old. 
Yes. And what, what can you tell us about, I think so much of what everyone sees of, of the horses and, and especially the thoroughbreds that are, that are in such, so much of the spotlight today. What can you tell us about the, the personality of these horses, especially when, uh, once they are off the track and in a, in a sanctuary environment? So thoroughbreds are an amazing breed. They happen to be my favorite. If I had to choose a favorite horse breed, it would be the thoroughbred. They have so much character and personality. Um, The challenge for thoroughbreds historically has been that because of the way they're raised and brought up through race training, you know, when they're foals and started in training, their only mission is to run and to learn how to become an athlete. So they generally don't receive the same type of groundwork and horsemanship and real um, human horse connection type training that you would expect or maybe see out of horses that come up through a lesson barn that are handled a lot by children. Um, So that means when they come to us from the track or from, you know, whatever off track circumstances, wherever they wound up after their race career was over, a lot of them really don't know anything other than how to, you know, take off running. <laughs> so that means we have to do a lot of work with them on uh, manners, for example, how to lead. A lot of them come with severe anxiety because of, you know, the repeated amounts that they're trailered and taken to new circumstances. We have several that have developed um, what in the equine world is called a vice, but really it's a coping mechanism from them having been stalled upwards of 22 hours a day during their racing lives. Um, That's extremely unnatural for a horse. So they'll develop, um, you know, kind of nervous tics and behaviors due to that isolation. One of ours is does this behavior called cribbing, where he bites down on on the stall doors or pieces of wood and, and sucks in air. We have others that bob and weave and, you know, are just real nervous in confinement. So each horse is an individual. They all come with their own set of baggage. And one of the first things we do when we take in a racehorse is take the time to learn that horse so that we can help them unpack that baggage and work through our transition into a more natural environment. Yes. And that, that brings up a, a really interesting point that although you are not uh, training and, and kind of rehabilitating and preparing these horses for uh, a second life in another um, in another manner of, of the horse industry, there is still a lot of, of training and work and, and everything that goes into these horses, I would imagine. Oh, a million percent. I mean, a lot of them come, you know, not only with, you know, behavioral or training issues, but health issues. I mean, it's, it's very rare for a racehorse to retire from a racing career sound. So they almost always have some sort of physical malady that needs to be treated. Um, And then again, depending on what the circumstances that they wound up in after their racing career, I mean, that that could include a whole host of different, you know, trauma type circumstances that they have to be worked through. Yes. And, and I know personally here at our sanctuary, what it is like to deal with a, uh, 150 plus pound stubborn goat that at times can, can put up quite the fight. I can't, uh, I can't even begin to fathom what it must be like to try to maneuver these thousand plus pound uh, horses that can run in some cases can run faster than 30 and 40 miles per hour. Like how, how would you describe what it takes to get those animals to trust you 
and understand that you have their best interest in mind, especially when some of them have such a history of mistreatment and abuse. So almost the saddest part of this whole thing is that the thoroughbred is such a good natured horse that even despite what they've been through, they almost always come to us with a willing attitude. Um, you know, some of them are more stubborn than others, but I've yet to see or to meet a thoroughbred that was just totally broken. And it that is actually what I'm like tearing up as we're even talking about it, because that's what's so gut wrenching about it all is like, despite what, you know, we've done to them as a human as a species, they still show up willing, you know, to trust and learn and do something else. And that just really speaks to the nature of the thoroughbred breed, which is part of what I love about them so much. Yes, that that resiliency, uh, I guess, is as uh, positive of, of a uh, trait as it is for them is is the unfortunate side of of what has led them to, I guess, be so mistreated and, and abused and and um, taken advantage of of in the industry. Because, like you said, despite what despite what occurs to them, they just kind of keep coming back for more because that's their nature. Right. Exactly. Uh, one thing that, that I know you kind of briefly touched on uh, that I want to talk about in regards to the racing industry is, is what the long-term effects are on these horses and whether that is the, uh, the cocktail of performance enhancing drugs they're giving uh, the whipping and shocking during the races or just the, considerable strain that the training and racing places on their bones and joints and tendons. And do you see long-term effects in the thoroughbreds at your sanctuary and, and what kind of what goes into, to reversing those? Is there anything specific you all do to help offset some of that damage that may have already occurred prior to their arrival? Yeah, so of the six race bred horses that we have here, um, one is, you know, brand new to the program. So we've yet to really evaluate her physically. But so let's say of the five that have been here for, you know, a substantial duration of time, three of those are on a daily arthritis medication. Um, they, the, the impact of the level of athleticism that they endure at such a young age. Uh, many people don't understand that thoroughbred racehorses are started in the racing discipline at two years old. That's two to three years before what most experts agree is physical maturity for a horse. So they are started in extremely uh, demanding, you know, physical exercise long before their joints and muscles and bones and tendons are formed, um, which really, I mean, that, that is the number one contributing factor to their bodies breaking down is, is the fact that they are worked so hard, so young. And um, we have thoroughbreds here that their race careers ended when they were four years old. Well, that's before they should really even have been ridden in the first place. Um, so, you know, some of our racers that were on the track for longer than others, one we have whose his joints are just completely calcified. I mean, he can't even bend his fetlock, his ankle joint because of the damage that uh, was done to that, you know, bone tissue from all of that hard impact 
um, work for for ten, he he raced for almost ten years. So that's a really long race career for a horse. Um, of the ones that even have been off the track for 10 years or more, they still have arthritis and drag their legs and, you know, have a hard time uh, lifting up feet for farrier and that sort of thing. I mean, it's exactly what you would expect if you put a human through those circumstances. I mean, look at, you know, pro football players and pro athletes like they you can't you just can't sustain <laughs> that lifestyle. Your body can't do that. So um, horses are, are are much the same. Yes, and I think an important thing that that you touched on there was that in some of the in the case of probably many of the horses out there uh, at at five and six years old, their their racing careers are over, and that's only one one fifth or one sixth of the lifespan of these horses in in most cases, and so it's uh, there's so much attention and money and and everything poured into the first six years of these horses lives um, for them to be a part of that industry that it, it is worrisome as far as what, what then happens in the case of so many of the horses. And, and fortunately there are places like your sanctuary for them to come to, but, but what happens for the next 25 years of their life? Exactly. That's exactly right. And even those who go through the thoroughbred aftercare programs, which are wonderful, you know, I mean, arguably the thoroughbred aftercare programs that have sprung up out of the race industry over the last 15 years have have been the single best thing mm -hmm. for thoroughbreds in thoroughbred racing history. But even still, I mean, their focus, again, is on rehabbing and retraining the horse right off the track and then adopting them out to, you know, an, a rider, a new home. And from there, there is almost no line of sight to what happens to those horses. So all of these horses that are coming off the track, even the ones that are exceptionally lucky to go through one of these wonderful thoroughbred aftercare programs, well, that's only a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card. I mean, what happens for the rest of the 20-some years in their life? Nobody is tracking them or watching them or making sure that they're safe. Yes, and I think uh, one thing that that when we touched on in the intro, the the possibility of of slaughter and, and being shipped across uh, our borders for that and, and being shipped overseas for that. And uh, a lot of people would also think, well, that, that only happens to uh, the horses that, that never, uh, that never have success on the track. And, and I think that's also a, a very common mis misconception and, and something that, that I was not even necessarily aware of that, that even, uh, the 1986 Derby winner, uh, I think it was Ferdinand, was shipped overseas to Japan to a to a breeding facility, and they still there was not confirmation, but they believe, and and all the experts believe that in 2002 was even sent to a slaughterhouse um, to be to be made into pet food. Um, so it, this is not even a the the impacts that this has on their life and and the aftercare of that. Uh, does not even exclude those that were at the peak of the sport. I mean, that winning the Kentucky Derby is one of the biggest things that that any horse can do, and and even horses that that have kind of reached that that pinnacle of the sport are still at times destined for the same very unfortunate fate as so many others. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, for those of us who are familiar with equine kill pens and who, you know, watch those uh, situations, that happens a lot more frequently than people might think. But the other side of that coin is, you know, the vast majority of thoroughbreds that are bred for racing aren't going to make it to the upper echelon of the sport. So, you know, what people see in the Kentucky Derby represents, you know, probably less than 1% of the thoroughbreds that are bred for the sport. So, you know, what happens to all of those other tens of thousands of horses? You know, just because they didn't make it to the Derby doesn't mean that they're just garbage, you know? No, you're exactly right. I mean, I know there are, on average, uh, in in the thoroughbred breed alone, there are 20,000 horses uh, a year that are that are bred and born, um, in the U S and, and less than on a big year, 20 or 20 horses, um, yep. make it to that one race. So what happens to the other, uh, 19,900 plus horses that, that are out there in, in the world and, and, and looking at, at that care that they receive. And, um, I think the, the stats that I saw said roughly 65% of them have some, some career in the race industry, but again, that's only 60. You're still talking about 35% of the horses that, that, uh, because of, of injury and, and genetic issues and everything else never even make it to that. And, and if we're treating the horses that we are pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into in the manner that we are, we can only imagine uh, the, the fate and, and uh, unfortunate care that some of, some of those 35% of the, the thoroughbreds out there receive. Yeah. Well, I mean, s- sadly, tragically and horrifically, I, I can, I can imagine it because we've dealt with it. You know, I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's awful. And I truly, truly believe that if people really understood what was happening behind the scenes they they wouldn't support it they couldn't there's no possible way yes and and one of the things that that you talked about that i really like that sets your sanctuary apart from so many of the other uh rescues and sanctuaries out there um for off the track racehorses is that you do not focus on preparing the horses for those second careers and and instead consider them retired and, and let them be a horse what is it that made you decide to go that route uh, at your sanctuary? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question, you know, on the one side, like sanctuary is financially difficult and it limits the number of horses that we can take in. So there are definitely some pros to, you know, the adoption model where people are trying to, you know, place them with riding homes. So I'd, you know, I'm, I don't want to be critical of other programs because they certainly serve their place in the ecosystem of horse rescue. But for my part, you know, I didn't grow up riding horses. So the whole equestrian world was just kind of removed from, you know, my line of thinking. And um, I mean, I, I have ridden horses before, and I think it's beautiful. And I love horses, obviously. But for me, I just don't look at a horse and see their ability to ride as being their number one utility. 
Um, I see them here enjoying a life of with, you know, no expectations other than to just be a horse. And the deeper we got involved in horse rescue, that really kind of solidified for me as the experience that I wanted to be able to provide horses, we were taking in some of the worst cases, the most horrific, you know, traumas, I really felt like we owed it to them to just not ask them any more of them. You know, I just felt like they had already paid their debt to humanity and that the greatest gift that I could provide for them was the ability to just be a horse. So um, that was kind of the line of thinking for us. And some people, it's interesting because a lot of people have different philosophies on thoroughbreds specifically, but, you know, the greater issue of horse rescue. And um, I would say the percentage of, of facilities that offer no strings attached sanctuary is, you know, a, a huge minority in the sphere of horse rescue. I mean, there are very, very few facilities that offer what we do. And, um, you know, again, most of us are are full all the time, you can only hope so many. So, um, you know, for us, like, I just, the ones that we are that we can take and that we have been able to make room for I just we we focus on providing them the highest quality of life um, and let them just kind of live out and be be a horse for the first time in their lives yes I love that um, can you tell us just a bit more obviously horse is a, a big topic today but can you tell us just a bit more about uh, some of the other, uh, species and animals that you have there at the sanctuary besides uh, the equines? Yes. Yeah, so I actually started in animal advocacy um, with pigs. So we had two pet pigs that lived with us uh, prior to us even uh, buying a farm and getting into, you know, full farm animal rescue and equine rescue. Um, I, I love many pigs, especially because again, just an extremely, um, you know, overpopulated, underserved animal in the rescue community. A lot of people don't realize that 90% of miniature pigs that are purchased for pets end up being rehomed within the first year. And um, most of our pigs actually come from our local animal control. So we take both pigs um, and goats as well. And then we have turkeys, we have um, donkeys, mini mules, and then I'm very active in our local low-cost spay and neuter program. So we do a lot of um, cats every year as well. Yes, I love to hear uh, people bring up the topic of, of mini pigs. It's a topic that's near and dear to us. Uh, we, we have a number of, of mini pigs, including, uh, like you said, I think a lot of them come from, uh, from homes that don't know what they're getting into. Um, they're, they're great pets to these people until they aren't anymore. And then they just, uh, unlike even, I've never seen anything like it, even the dogs and cats of the world, they don't just uh, cast them aside like they do many pigs. It's, it is absolutely mind-blowing to us and, and the number that we have rescued and um, and, and helped find uh, other homes for and, and provided sanctuary here, just how in a very similar manner to, to uh, horses are just cast aside when, when people decide they are done with them. Uh, they're the number, many pigs are the number one surrender requests that we get into the farm program, followed by horses that can no longer be ridden. 
Yes, very, very interesting kind of connection there um, between them. I uh, I do want to talk briefly about a, a really cool fundraiser that I saw um, you all doing when, when I was looking on social media. And uh, it's a, a fundraising raffle with a rather unique prize uh, that oh, your friends yeah. at... at Yes, your friends at, at Twins Hay there in, in rural Hall, North Carolina, are raffling off a pallet of 18 bales of premium orchard uh, alfalfa hay from Colorado. And and one lucky winner, have you all chosen the winner today or is it later today? It's later today, actually. As soon as we hang up here, I'm going to head over there to help uh, with the raffle. I'm very excited for that. Yes, and one thing I really loved was, was that... Uh, talking about if, if a non-local or, or non-animal owning supporter wins, then they can choose to kind of donate that pallet either either to you all or to another uh, verified animal nonprofit within the, within the, delivery. the delivery. Yes. So we are just so lucky to have the best hay supplier in the world. <laughs> they really support us in our mission. Obviously we buy with 27 horses, we buy an obscene amount of hay. Um, so they do everything they can to help support us via donations. Um, they help, you know, all kinds of fundraisers and uh, they even, you know, will when we take in a new horse, they'll donate, you know, a bag of feed or just w whatever they can do to help support. They're always there for us, which is great. And I, I'm emphasizing this point because I want people or I hope people understand what a village it takes to support a sanctuary. You know, it may look like on social media that we just like have it all together, but it really is due to a network of people, including our hay supplier and our trainers and our vets and our volunteers and even our family members. I mean, we personally sacrifice a lot to make this happen. And we, you know, it, it takes a village. It truly does. So um, Twins Hay, if you're listening, thank you so much for your support. Yes, thank thank you all for for doing that, and and it takes, like you said, uh, it takes a village. It it takes um, support in in unusual or uncommon ways at times, and and I love kind of the the thinking out of the box, unique way of of that fundraiser, and and would love to to see other um, sanctuaries find ways to to partner with places to do things similar because that is a it's a really cool win win in that. Um, depending on the winner, you have the opportunity to not only benefit from the fundraising efforts of it, but potentially uh, a whole pallet of hay. Yeah. Well, and equally, I would be just as excited if another horse rescue in the area won the pallet of hay. Like that's, you know, we, all the sanctuaries in the area and even across the country are really incredibly supportive of one, of one another. There are so many times that I call other sanctuaries to ask for advice or support. You know, I've got this issue. Have you ever dealt with this before? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, us supporting each other is another really important element to sanctuary work. Yes, definitely. Definitely a huge goal of, of ours. And, and one of the reasons that we started this podcast to kind of help bring the sanctuary world together. Um, if our listeners want to find out more information about Red Feathers Farm Sanctuary, where can they do so? We have a website, which is redfeatherfarmsanctuary.org. We are also on Facebook and Instagram under Red Feather Farm NC for North Carolina. 
And then um, you can email, send us a Facebook Messenger or Instagram direct message. We love to talk to people. So any questions you might have, um, we welcome those. And then obviously, if you're local to the Winston-Salem or North Carolina area, please feel free to reach out and set up a time to come meet us in person. Um, the farm's not open to the public, but we welcome other sanctuaries and um, other, you know, vets and people who are interested in in horses to come visit and, and learn about our program. Yes, and we will make sure to include all of that uh, information in the show notes uh, so that everyone can easily uh, get in contact with you and, and find out more information. Um one thing I did want to touch on is is that, of course, today being what it is and being Derby Day, there will be more than $200 million in bets placed today alone. And it is uh, mind-blowing to think of that number. And, I mean, if we could get one-eighth of that amount donated to sanctuaries across the country um, on a day like today, it would make an incredible difference. Um, rather than making that $2 bet on a horse today, uh, if there's someone else out there that that is saying, "Hey, I've heard everything that's going on. I want to, I want to make a difference um, in the lives of these horses uh, that are that are in retirement and are now off the track." Is there a way that our listeners uh, can make a donation to you today, rather than making that that bet uh, on on horse racing today? We would love that so much. Um, those donations are really what we rely on to help these animals and to continue being able to take animals into the program. Um, we take donations via PayPal, Facebook, um, or Venmo. All of our donate information is found on our website as well. There's even a donate button there that you can just directly hit that and it'll take you straight to a payment page. Um, and then we can also take checks in the mail and that address is located on our website as well. Awesome. And, and we'll also include, um, include the donation information in the show notes. What is one last message that you would like to, to leave our listeners with on Derby Day? How much time do we have? <laughs> um, I want people to understand how much thoroughbreds really need people to stand up and be their voice. I think because they have this, you know, um, perception of the Derby and them being, you know, multi-million dollar horses, maybe people think that they don't need advocates, but they really do. I mean, even a million dollar horse needs somebody to stand up for that horse and make sure that it's safe throughout the duration of its lifetime. Um, and the and the racing barns aren't going to do it. The racing industry is not going to do it. So we really need as a as a collective, as a society, we need to be talking about this issue. We need to talk to people about horse racing. Um, you know, when people invite you to a derby party or ask you who you're betting on or congratulate the winner, talk to that person about what that means for the horses who are involved. And I think as long as we're aware and we're working together, I really do believe that we can create a better uh, a better world for racehorses. I mean, ultimately, I would love to see horse racing end. Um, and we're going to get that means with incremental change. So everybody, um, just please think about thoroughbreds, reach out to sanctuaries, get engaged because they, they need you. They really do. 
Allison, I want to I want to sincerely thank you for being with us today, and and thank you for all the amazing care that you provide, uh, both your equine residents and all of the others, um, and and can't wait to share this episode with with our listeners and um, hopefully change some hearts on a day where uh, so many eyes are are focused on um, on a single race and and show them that again instead of focusing on the fastest two minutes in sports, let's focus on the, the full 20, 30 plus years um, that that some of these horses are going to have off the track and, and what we can do to make those as, as good as possible. And, and like you said, hopefully um, bring some change uh, down the line to, to that industry and, and um, just, just excited to, to spend some time with you this morning and thank you thank you again awesome thanks so much for having me thank you for listening to the sanctuary life podcast presented by butterfly valley rescue and sanctuary to find out more about our podcast and how you can be a part of it visit our webpage at butterflyvalleyrescue.com forward slash podcast or join us on social media at Sanctuary Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please remember to download the episode and recommend us to family and friends. See you next time.